This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand that I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce the Plus CBD Reserve Collection, a specially curated blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids. Rich and bold, the Reserve Collection products elicit strong feelings of calm, comfort and relief when intense support is needed. Enjoy a deeper CBD experience with Plus CBD's reserve collection of oils and gummies. All of their products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. And with a 90-day satisfaction guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's new reserve collection. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and uh, we're into uh, something that is extraordinarily timely because today, literally today, uh, hearings are being held about the safety of breast implants. They're under federal review after reported illnesses. And no, this is not new. Uh, There has been uh, a news cycle uh, over the history of of breast implants, which at various times have called into question their safety and alternatively exonerated them. And so uh, this is, for many women, uh, concerning because uh, 400,000 women obtain breast implants on an annual basis. And a lot of women uh, have breast implants. They have them for cosmetic purposes. They have them for reconstructive purposes after breast cancer. Uh, this is a big deal. Uh, if they can't trust the safety of these, what are after all medical devices, well, that's quite concerning. Uh, today we're going to talk to uh, a cosmetic uh, and plastic surgeon uh, who's very familiar with us. Uh, he's, she is Dr. Sophie Bartsish, and uh, Dr. Bartsish is uh, a graduate of uh, Columbia University. She has a medical degree at Weill Cornell Medical College. Uh, she did her plastic surgery at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, she's active in the field of cosmetic breast surgery. Uh, and uh, she's also very acquainted with implant-based complications. And that is sort of a subset of breast surgery because, well, sometimes these things go wrong. And she's going to tell us uh, what can go wrong and give us some perspective on the hearings that are now being held. Dr. Bartz, it's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us with this timely update. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's uh, get a little bit of history uh, on breast uh, implants because uh, I did a little research on this. And actually, uh, I have here that in 1895, Austrian-German surgeon Vincent Czerny uh, who's known as the father of plastic surgery. Maybe he's known to you because you did a plastic surgery residence, residency uh, and fellowship. She He performed breast reconstruction on a woman at the University of Heidelberg. Uh, fast forward to 1962, a couple right. of guys, Thomas Cronin and Frank Giroux, invented the silicone breast implant, and the rest is history, right? 
That's right. So <laughs> a very long, a very long and, and, and diverse history at that. Indeed, because uh, there was there's there has this is not the first time that breast implants uh, have been called into question. Uh, in the nineties, uh, there were lawsuits against Dow Corning. Uh, for health issues linked to ruptured implants. And then there's been this whole controversy over silicone breast implants. So, so give us a little background on that, please. Right. So, you know, there's, there's two main categories of implants. There are the saline and the silicone. And the saline essentially is a sac that's filled with physiologic fluid or salt water, if you will. That's at a physiologic, physiologic balance. And then the other option is the silicone, which are gel-filled implants. And so those are the two main categories. And there's always been a discussion around both types, but it's really the silicone that's gotten the most attention and that is being called the most into question at this point. Um, at the time in the 90s, what was happening was there were a lot of patients who had gotten implants in the 80s and there was a percentage of those implants, of those patients with those implants who were complaining of various kinds of problems and the issue with it, which is still the issue today, is that these are nonspecific complaints. So you can't really draw a line between right. the implant and exactly what the patient's complaining. In other words, co correlation is not causation because women we know are prone to autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. And it was found that some women who had breast implants had these weird autoimmune diseases, Sjogren's syndrome and scleroderma and even lupus. Right. And then uh, they did a statistical analysis and they said, eh, we we're going to exonerate the breast implants is because they happen to occur in women who these problems occur in women who've had the breast implants does not imply a direct linkage. Is that right. fair so sum that's, summation? That's, that's a fair summation. And, you know, it's a, it's a combination of the fact that you can't really make a direct link. There's no specific blood test or vital yep. sign that says this is an implant problem. And then there's also the fact that this entity that's now being termed breast implant associated illness is in and of itself a difficult thing to describe or prove. And sometimes it's not a specific autoimmune disease. Sometimes it's just, I don't feel so great. Yeah. I'm a little tired vague. all the time. It's vague, it's vague, right. Yeah, and, and, and what do you really do with that? And how yeah. do you figure out with everything else that you have going on in your life what exactly caused mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. um, and, and their testimonials from someone where they said they've had the removal of their breast implant, they feel so much better. But that's anecdotal. Yeah. That's anecdotal. Correct. So in the, you know, in the 90s, they were looking at this, there were enough reports, and then some of the patients got organized and came together, and there was just enough data that it was worth looking at. They actually had a moratorium on the implants, meaning they took them off the market entirely, and there was no silicone that was available to anyone, and that lasted about 15 years, and it was really thoroughly reviewed, and then they came back on the market because no one could make any definitive conclusions, and there was no definitive proof that there was a real problem worthy of keeping them off the market. And, and why do so, silicone at all if there uh, are potential issues associated with silicone when you can have saline implants and uh, that are less associated with health problems? So, you know, there's there's two parts to that to that answer. The first part is that, you know, silicone was originally chosen because it was always believed to be inert. So it was always believed that the body would have no response to it and no immune response in particular. It was always believed that you wouldn't have any bacteria that could grow inside the implant and that it just was this kind of thing that doesn't do anything but sit there. So wouldn't it be a perfect thing to use? It also feels really soft and jelly-like, which simulates breast very well. And so a lot of it was the belief that 
it's totally innocuous and it doesn't do anything or provoke anything in the body. And then the second part of it is that the saline implants, the traditional ones, which are just one compartment, after a while they, you know, especially depending on the size you use or how much breast tissue you have to cover it, they could start looking sort of like a water balloon. And so the silicone offered an aesthetic result that was believed to be superior. So mm-hmm. When you take those two things so you, together, you avoid the, the waterbed effect, you know. Yeah, you know, they would, yeah, exactly. And so they, they believed, most surgeons believe that you got a better result, more natural feel, more natural look, and something that's totally inert. So why not use it? Right. So uh, fast forward to 2019, uh, there are new concerns that have arisen. And I think this all started uh, in Europe. Is that correct? Yeah, so there's there are new and old concerns. So that's what's interesting about what's happening right now. So um, one of the things that happened when the silicone implants came back on the market is they made several what they believe to be improvements. And one of the main improvements was cohesive gel, meaning they took the same gel, but they linked the molecules together tighter. So you had something that was a little firmer, but it also was less runny as a gel. And that becomes relevant because if you have a rupture and the gel gets out, when it's runny and gooey and sticky, it's very, very difficult to clean up effectively. So these implants, this is what everyone came to start calling as the gummy bear implants. So it's still a gel, it's still soft, but if it ever got cut, it would be more yeah. of a cut versus a tear that lets all this oozy stuff out. How, so how just... Dr. Bartzi, how realistic is the prospect of rupture? Because, I mean, there are many internal organs of the body, you know, the liver, the spleen that in, uh, you know, a a sports injury or a ski injury or certainly an automotive uh, injury, a vehicular accident uh, can rupture. We know that. So we have a bag, essentially, that contains a material which has uncertain properties if released uh, throughout the thoracic cavity, you know, which basically where it's implanted. Um, how realistic is that prospect? And have you seen patients who've experienced ruptures? Uh, I've definitely seen it. So, you know, when you put the implant in, it, it, the body will make a shell of scar tissue around it called a capsule. So everything that happens inside the capsule is still relatively contained in that capsule, but it's still in, t- in contact with the body. In terms of rupture rates, you know, we have the data that are reported by the main implant manufacturers, and they usually report their rates at about 10 years. You can look through their literature and get the rates further down the road, but around 10 years, you're looking at something around 15 to 20% on average. There is some variability. Whoa. Wait a minute. And, Wait, yeah, that's 15 pretty high. To, I mean, if if you want, if you were to get on a on a plane, uh, say a you know Boeing seven thirty seven to cite <laughs> frequently, uh, you know, a concerning example, and there was a fifteen percent uh, risk of plane malfunction, you wouldn't get on that plane. You're saying that a ten year risk of rupture of fifteen up to fifteen percent with the potential right. for seepage of some potentially caustic or uh, immunoreactive material into the into the body. Well, yeah, so that's that's the main issue is that you know, the reason why people have this number of 10 years in their head of when they have to replace their implants, it's not really an alarm clock. It's not a right. time bomb. It's all these are all just statistical averages. And so what ends up happening is after about 10 years, the rupture rate gets, like you said, to a number that's a little bit uncomfortably high. Yeah. So that's why most people end up switching them out at some time before that, because after that, the numbers get 
more significant, and then you have a really high chance of rupture. So, you know, in keeping with all these concerns with rupture, just uh, going back to what we were talking about before, the cohesive gel, the, the initial iterations of that were shaped implants that were shaped like a teardrop because they were believed to potentially give you even better aesthetic effect. Maybe it'll look more natural. Right. But the problem with the shape... You, you don't want that sort of uh, spherical, perfect spherical uh, appearance because that's sort of a dead giveaway, right? Right. Um, and now, you you know, you're going to have your own breast tissue that's going to dictate a certain amount of shape anyway. So even with a round implant, you can get a nice natural shape if you're fitted properly. Mm -hmm. But in an effort to kind of maximize this, one of the things they did is they made some anatomic implants. And in order for those implants to not turn within the pocket and look upside down, they made a textured coating <laughs> yeah. on them so yeah. that it would grab onto the tissue. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's a new concern now is we are learning that the texture on the implants is something that is probably uh, you know, to be concerned about. It has been linked to a very rare form of lymphoma. And uh, this is one of the new issues. And I think there have been over 400 documented cases of this rare lymphoma. I mean, lymphoma relatively common cancer, but this is a subtype of lymphoma, which is Correct. unusual, right? This is called ALCL. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And is it is it the material that they're using, or is it the ir chronic irritation that the texture may be causing, setting up an inflammatory reaction that affects the lymphatic system and ultimately leads to cancer? It's believed to be the texturing. Okay. And they can even, you know, we've even tried to separate out the different types of texturing among different implant companies, and there are certain ones that seem to be slightly more high risk than others. Um, you know, so this is this is a real issue. There have been documented illnesses. There have been documented severe illnesses. Um, in Europe, they are in the process of banning these uh, these textured implants, and I and I think I would support that. Um, so these this is part of the sort of new concerns. And then uh, the you know going back to the old concerns, which is the other very interesting part of this is a lot of the old concerns are coming back as well in terms of autoimmune disease and people just not feeling well with their implants. So we actually have two different things that are going on in relation to the same devices. Okay, so on the one hand, if I can summarize, this dire prospect of a very uh, dangerous uh, malignancy, but which is rare, but then it sort of puts the crosshairs back on breast implants once again to resurrect previous concerns about uh, vague symptoms, autoimmune disorders that are hard to trace. Right. Right. So, okay. Um, so y you and your career with mm -hmm. cosmetic breast surgery, uh, have you uh, envisioned this? Have you been skeptical about some of these uh, newer procedures and, you know, based on the evidence presented to you said, mm, you know, this isn't ready for prime time? Well, so, you know, one of the things that happened in my personal practice in the last several years is there was a point, I, I was using a, a lot of silicone for a long time. Uh, I really liked the way that it looked and felt. My patients were very happy with it. Um, and, uh, you know, then it got to a point where I started to see some of these patients who've had implants in for a very long time and you know, once they come out, they tend to feel better. It's not everybody. It's a small group of people, but it's a real thing that I've observed. And I remember saying to myself, you know, I wish there were a saline-based alternative that I felt could be aesthetically comparable because I feel like there's something brewing and I'm not really sure what to make of it. And I think, you know, some of my colleagues would agree there's something going on and it's still a little bit hard to define. 
Um, so I definitely was looking into new kinds of options and you know other types of implants, and I, I found an implant called the Ideal Implant, which is what's it called? Same, I'm sorry, the Ideal Implant. Ideal, okay. Yeah, it's a saline-based implant with multiple chambers, and it mm -hmm. holds a really nice shape. That's not so you avoid like the silicon connection. You avoid the silicone connection, but you get a, a really good aesthetic result. And so I've been using a lot of that implant for exactly all those reasons. And the more experience I get and the more patients I treat and the more patients I treat who've had implants in for an extended period of time, the more I'm sort of, you know, starting to really feel that there's something going on. And like I said, you know, it's not everyone. There are millions of women with implants. There are a lot of them who are very happy and, you know, living their lives and not having a problem. But, you know, the way that I explain it to patients is if you if you give a hundred people a glass of red wine, they're going to have a hundred different responses. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a and you can't predict that necessarily if they've never had that glass of wine before. So there are certain patients for whom they just don't tolerate the implants well, and the problem is that you you wouldn't know until you try it. Um, so. so so I have to go here, Doctor Bartz. Is is and this sort of is the fundamental question. In 2019, uh, what are what is the rationale for getting a, a breast implant in this era of female empowerment and uh, you know the uh, uh, an effort to reduce uh, body shaming and so on and so forth uh, self acceptance you know these movements are uh, well underway uh, and should uh, further uh, women's acceptance of you know their God given attributes. Uh, w under what circumstances might breast implants be important? You know, we can understand uh, in in cancer, for example. You know, we have reconstruction that's given to women as an option after uh, breast uh, removal, mastectomy. But mm -hmm. what are some of the considerations here? Well, one of the points I'd like to make in drawing, you know, a parallel between reconstruction and cosmetic augmentation is that there are cultures in which reconstruction is not acceptable, where they feel like just wanting to be reconstructed even after a bilateral mastectomy is vain. Uh -huh. And I've had that happen that I've had patients who were getting a lot of pressure from their family not to do any reconstruction because why should you care? Um, and to that end... And so you have you have to be a little bit of a psychologist when you work with patients. And in fact, oh, your absolutely. college major was psychology. It wasn't in, yes. the, it wasn't in the hard sciences of, you know, biology, no. uh, chemistry, biochemistry, genetics. It was in psychology, which actually probably right. serves you in good stead because there are a lot of psychological ramifications to making this decision when you work oh, with it's, patients. It's a very big deal. And all of these surgeries, you know, these are these are journeys um, that you take with your patient. But, you know, I will I will emphatically and fiercely defend any woman's right to do whatever it is she feels she wants to do to feel comfortable in her skin and with her body. Um, there's a lot of changes that happen even after pregnancy that are that can be, for some people, very mentally challenging and physically disabling. And I believe everyone should be able to put themselves back together and do what they need to do. But, you know, in answer to your right. question, as a general rule, when it comes to cosmetic surgery, which is something elective, and we have to remember that it's still surgery and it's still to be taken seriously. I think that these, you know, anyone who is a good candidate for surgery within a reasonable margin of risk is a good candidate for surgery and should have the choice to do what they want. And I think in terms of devices they use, the, the procedure is only as good and as safe as the devices. But we have options. And I think it's important to understand all of them, understand everything that comes with all of them, and then make an informed choice for yourself. And it might not be the same choice for everyone, but um, I think the biggest mistake is not having the procedure done, but rather 
being sort of targeted to only one option and not understanding the whole picture and not making a choice with all the available information. Well, you know, I guess in the context of uh, modern sexual reassignment surgery, uh, making a decision that if nature endowed you as a 32A, you prefer to identify as a 36D, may be a a relatively minor alteration. Correct. Right. Uh, So uh, what are some of the different breast implant options uh, available today? And uh, what would you say... Uh, to women who are faced with that choice. So you prefer the ideal, it's the saline, but what are some of the other options that are still considered safe? And I guess we have to wait for the uh, advisory from the FDA because hearings are being held this week. That's correct. The hearings are today and tomorrow. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, You know, no one knows what the final recommendations will be and whether there will be any devices that will no longer be favored or even potentially uh, you know, discuss discussion about whether or not they should be on the market. But as a general rule, I would say, you know, saline still seems to be uh, quite safe. I think as far as saline implants go, the ideal to me um, represents an advance in technology. Um, I like it very much and I've had good experience with my patients. When it comes to silicone, I don't think we're in a place where we're saying all silicone's bad and evil and no one should ever use it. Um, I do think that textured implants have proven to have a real problem. I would mm-hmm. not recommend they're, using they're, those devices. They're not going to be around. They're, that's just I, not going to happen. I, I don't think so. Um, and then in terms of the silicone gel, I think the cohesive gel is a good option. I think it is better to have something that is going to, if it gets out of the shell, be easier to clean up and less of an issue and you know potentially might cause less of an inflammatory response, but we don't really know the answer to that. Um, I think once the shell is cracked, you're still in contact with, the, with you know, the silicone is still in contact with your tissues. So it's still something to think about. And, you know, the other issue is in terms of we're talking about these, this rate of rupture, you know, how do you determine whether or not the implant is ruptured? Because when the silicone gel implant ruptures, you can't really tell. It doesn't just get absorbed mm-hmm. like saline would get absorbed. And that's another part of this is, you know, in the, in the scheme of healthcare and expense and time and diagnosis and all of that, you know, they recommend getting MRIs every couple of years to check on the implant. Oh, okay. So, my, so if you have a, is, is this a, a standard practice? If you have a breast implant, yeah. uh, you, you know, you need to get you need to check in there's some follow-up necessary i didn't even know that i said you know you just like you know uh get them and use them and you know have a nice life but no actually the responsible thing is to do some appropriate follow-up just to make sure that there's no uh leakage or some problem developing so the the recommendation is an mri every couple of years and Mm -hmm. the the issues with that are that usually you have to pay for that yourself. So that's mm-hmm. something that you, yep. can't, you can't ignore that. That's an expense and it's mm-hmm. a significant expense. Mm-hmm. Um, also getting an MRI, I don't know if you've ever had one, is not the most pleasant experience. No. Um, sort of in this little tube and it can be quite claustrophobic. But the, the other part of it though is that the MRI has always been considered the gold standard for silicone implant rupture. This is for silicone because for saline it's not the right. same the same thing. And in my experience, I've had a handful of patients who've had an MRI that said the implant was ruptured. And when we went to the operating room and took out the implant, it wasn't. Oh, so positive. Yeah. yeah, I've also found that they're not always that reliable. Sometimes they're very helpful and mm-hmm. sometimes they're not 100%. So you have to make a decision about surgery based on a test that may or may not be completely accurate. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is, is very frustrating and kind of unsettling. It's a big decision to go back to the operating room. Is, is there a limit to uh, a number of 
uh, re-implantation cycles that a woman can undergo. I mean, it's like you're saying that there's uh, a lifetime for the implant and also the, the shape of the breast, the, the, the woman's body uh, contours may change, um, that uh, you may undergo several implants during a lifetime. Is that That's a fair correct. assessment? Yeah, most, most patients will uh, not end up with the same ones they started with. And mm-hmm. that's as a general rule. That's usually the case. There isn't really a defined number. You know, you've had five and now you're done. You got one more yeah. and then that's it. Yeah. There are some people who unfortunately have had multiple, multiple operations. But every time, it's like anything else. Every time you go back in, you risk having more scar tissue. Yeah. You risk getting an infection. You risk having some other kind of problem. It's it's a lot of manipulation. So you don't want to have to operate multiple, multiple times on the same person. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that does happen for one reason or another. Okay. Well, you know, this has been most uh, informative, and, and there's we have more to talk about because we want to talk about uh, alternatives to uh, breast implants because there are some. Uh, we also want to talk about... Uh, well, we also want to talk about uh, breast surgery on men, uh, which uh, you're an expert on as well. It may seem implausible. We're not talking about breast implants. We're talking about quite the opposite. Uh, and you know, some considerations uh, in terms of, you know, how you approach a patient and how uh, you uh, create a uh, good outcome and a realistic outcome from women who are desirous of making that uh, cosmetic change. So we're going to talk about that in part two. Our guest is Dr. Sophie Bartzish. Uh, Dr. Bartzish, you want to give out information about, you have a website as well, right? Yes, my website is uh, drsophie.com, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-S-O-P-H-I-E.com. And there's a lot of information on a breast surgery and also other types of uh, aesthetic surgery that I do. And you you practice in uh, Manhattan, but you do have patients who come from all over the country and all over the, the world, in fact. And uh, yes. you also offer the additional benefit uh, that you're bilingual. So uh, you see in French, yes. you attended the Lycée Francaise in New York, which is a really cool private school here in New York where kids learn in English and French. And uh, a lot of kids of diplomats and, you know, from foreign nationalities go there. It's a great place to send your kids to school. And uh, so do you have French patients who <laughs> come to see yes, you? Yes, I do. I, um, French is actually my first language, and it's a big part of uh, my cultural background and uh, and also just sort of how I see the world. It's a very international lens that I carry. Um, and for some patients, that's a, that's a very important and one of their priorities. Mm-hmm. So when women want to go topless uh, in Saint-Tropez, they come to see you, right? That's right. Okay, because that's... <laughs> That's the real test of a successful cosmetic intervention is uh, exactly the uh, <laughs> the uh, the beach of uh, Nice or Cannes. Okay, I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Uh, our guest, Dr. Sophie Bartzish. We'll be back for more on the subject of uh, breast cosmetic breast surgery uh, in part two of today's Intelligent Medicine podcast. We'll be right back. 